Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we have one of the founders of a massive company and a company whose t-shirts you guys probably have worn, Evan Stites Clayton of Teespring. He was the co-founder and CTO. He has been listed as Forbes 30 under 30. Him and his founder have raised money from massive, notable investors like Andreessen Horowitz and Coastal Ventures. Um, I think last I checked, the company had raised $65 million. He was uh, running that company for seven years, and now he's up to some exciting stuff that we'll talk to close to the end of the episode, including advising startups and kind of telling him about his battle scars. Evan, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be on. So, Evan, I know that your entrepreneurial journey started shortly after graduating from Brown. Uh, You tried a couple of jobs. You didn't quite fit in any uh, specific roles. And I think that's where you decided you you want to start something. And as a technical person or as an engineer, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast about finding co-founders and vetting co-founders. And I'm curious, how did you first meet your co-founder and how did you decide whether he was going to be a good person to work with or not? Because let's face it, engineers are typically, especially now, but I'm sure even in 2011, you guys started, is that right? Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, I'm sure even in 2011, engineers were super in demand. Everybody wants you to build their next app. So how did you go about finding your co-founder and vetting them? Mm, good question. Yeah, I think that co-founder selection is such an important part of the startup process. And it's really uh, the first step that you take on the journey and kind of having the right person with you is something that can make the difference between uh, an unbearably bad experience, and I've had plenty of friends who have had those, <laughs> or a really wonderful experience where um, there's somebody there supporting you, and ideally who also has a very complimentary skill set to you. So how did I find my co-founder? It was a little bit of chance. I think that there was some luck in what we had because you know, the the actual story of how we met each other wasn't something where I knew I was this hotshot engineer and I could choose any co-founder that I wanted. It was actually just that uh, he wanted to hire somebody to help him on a project, but the guy who was in his frat who he was going to hire got a concussion, and so they needed somebody else. And I happened to be in the same room at the right time. And so I just got that job that way. Um, We started working together and then um, it was just a great fit. I know you worked on another project before Teespring and I think you were building it for about six months or so. So I'm sure there were plenty of, uh, of time that you spent closely to each other. Did he hire you, like actually hire you and paid you some sort of contract or was it like, hey, let's work on this project together and, and see how it works out? So he actually hired me. There was a incubator program that gave us 18, I think it was, yeah, $18,000 for a summer. And so I got paid $6,000 to work one summer with him in Providence, which was a ton of money. Um, Oh my God, Providence, with the Providence rent, I was just like so excited about that job. That was kind of how we started working together. Uh, When it comes to what makes for a good co-founder pairing, I think there are a couple of things. Actually, I feel like there are three things that really make for a great co-founder pairing. So the first one that I would call out is complementary skill sets. Building a product takes a lot of different types of work and some specialization of labor is helpful to get more stuff done. It's one of the things that makes being a solo founder difficult. You just have to do so many different things or manage outsource partners who are doing the product if you're not doing that. And what really worked for us was that I was doing the back end coding 
and Walker was doing the designs and the front end code. And it just worked out that between those two jobs, they were roughly about the same amount of work. And um, so we were always kind of able to jam in real time. And I think that is a great dynamic you can have between sometimes two to four co-founders where each time somebody completes one part of a project, that becomes the impetus for the other person to complete the complementary element of that. So if I just finished the backend code for something, I could turn to Walker and say, hey, you should build the front end for this. I'm done. I did my part. And vice versa, if he built the front end, it was on me to build the back end. And so it sort of created a pinwheel of productivity that is just not possible to achieve with one person unless you have you know incredible work ethic or some sort of system where you I don't know, pass tasks back and forth to your contractors, but that is really something special with co-founder relationships. So that's number one, complementary skill sets. The second one is just personality fit. You need to be agreeable people. I think that it's not even necessarily a personality fit thing. It's just hard to be a co-founder if you're not generally an agreeable and nice person. And it's definitely not good to work with somebody who you don't find it pleasant to be around and who you couldn't imagine, for example, sitting on a train with for four hours having to make small talk. You want to be there with somebody who's not going to be trying to create conflict, trying to make things more difficult than they need to be, um, because you're going to be in that relationship with that person for a long time. And then the third thing that I think is really important for co-founder relationship is actually understanding hierarchy and having a CEO and having somebody who is ultimately in charge. Perfect democracies don't work in startups. That's not how it is. It's not, I have one vote, you have one vote. Where does that lead? Well, who's the tiebreaker? It's just better to have a CEO. And so from day one, starting out in the company, I always you know, took the role of CTO. And I knew that meant that if I didn't like a decision, but it was Walker's decision, at some point I might just have to live with it. And I'm okay with that. I um, actually think that is the best way for a company to run. Why do you think you were okay with Walker assuming the CEO role? Did you ever feel like you wanted that role or did you go into it saying, I don't really want some of those responsibilities that the CEO has and I want the weight on my shoulders? That's right. I didn't want necessarily all of that responsibility and uh, I have a lot of respect for Walker's courage. He never thought twice about it. For him, it was just such a natural thing to want to be the CEO. Now I think I'm ready. If I was going to start another company now, I think I would definitely want to be the CEO. And there were times at the company when it was frustrating for me not to have executive privileges because there were decisions that I didn't agree with. Not always Walker's decisions, but some of the other executives that we eventually hired along the way. And it would have been nice to have been able to have had some sort of executive authority. But overall, for me, seeing the harmoniousness of just having one person decision making, that was more important than being able to have it my way. Well, it also sounds like there was some innate trust there, obviously, that you guys built up over time, uh, whether it was because of the early work that you did together or somehow Walker just kind of proved to be a thought leader. It sounds like you had innate trust. Now, is that something that you established in the early days? Because you mentioned that, you know, you had very complementary skills, right? You were both working on product. 
he was on the front end, you were on the back end. But what about the revenue side of things, the business side of things? How did you establish that trust uh, from Walker that he's going to be the go-to guy to execute on the business side of things? Yeah, it was part of the trust, I think, was simply an interpersonal dynamic. I just felt like I trusted Walker as a person. And the trust for me also came from the fact that I saw how dedicated he was to the product, how how deeply he felt that that was his baby. And so I knew that I was dealing with somebody who cared not just as much as I did, but more than I did about the product that we were building together. And so ultimately that was the foundation of the trust was I trust that he cares about it and also that he's generally a good person who has some similar values to me that the combination of those two things makes it so that I could trust him to make the right decisions for the product. Yeah. About six months into building this product, uh, and it was something that you guys were trying to help people get uh, jobs easier, essentially. Was is that what it was? So our first product together was a student job website. Mm. Um, it was trying to replace Craigslist as the go-to platform for students at Brown to find and post jobs. Got it. Okay, great. And I actually see ideas like this at NYU come up even now, you know, seven yeah, years later, it's a, which it's a very common it's, uh, startup idea. Yeah. It's what's top of mind as well. If you think about it, we talk about how do you think of business ideas? We always go to the who you know and what you know. And in college, mm-hmm. what you know is I need a job. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. That yeah. And and then Walker comes to you six months later, basically saying, hey, we got to drop this and work on something else. Now, that's a difficult decision mm-hmm. to make. How did you guys know that this was the right time to give up on that idea and have any indication that the new idea would even work? That's a funny question. And it also kind of goes back to why I trust Walker, because he saw that Jobzol wasn't going to work out before I saw that. And that was because I was just, I had just spent all of this time developing Jobzol, put in the work, and I felt like uh, a certain attachment to it. I didn't want to let go of it. But what really convinced us was, the I mean, honestly, it was the fact that we had an investor who wanted to invest in Teespring, that concept, not in Jobzol. And so even though we were further along with Jobzol, uh, the fact that we were able, going to be able to raise money, that made a big difference. That maybe not everyone's going to have that uh, sort of blaring signal. It was a hard decision. I think that when you're thinking about whether to leave a project behind, you need to take into account that everyone wants to resist change to some extent. And so if you feel like you're resistant to changing what you're doing, you should still think think really hard about, well, it still might be time to move on. And why do you think that investor was interested in investing? Was there any proof points that he had that it was a good idea? Like what, what did you guys actually do to prove that Teespring was viable? We ran a one-off hacked together Teespring for one t-shirt and it went really well. It made more money than the other website had made in three months. Do you remember how much it made? It was Mm. $3,000, And yeah, so that was also a huge signal was like, here's something where we've been pushing the boulder up the hill, you know, day after day trying to get money and we can barely get a customer. And then there's this other thing that we just kind of threw together over the course of a weekend. And that just suddenly made us thousands of dollars. 
you said you threw it together over the course of a weekend. Can you tell us a little bit more about that origin story? Did you kind of just walk away for a weekend from the work that you were doing on Jobsel and decided to work on this? Yeah, I mean, everything at that time was kind of, I mean, we were also seniors in college, so there was a lot of stuff going on. And um, Jobsel was not at a stage where it required a ton of maintenance. So this was a very timely thing. I can give a little short version of the founding story. There was a bar in our town in Providence, and it was known as the place where you can go if you're underaged. <laughs> and so, of course, it was loved by all the students. And then one day there was a raid on the bar and they, I think, found that uh, 70% of the people in there were underage or something crazy like that. It was basically like enough that they shut, they completely shut down the business. And there was a huge outpouring on Facebook saying, bring back the bar. We want, it was called Fishco, Free Fishco. Now, really, obviously, this was all in vain because it was a legal thing, not a financial thing. There's no amount of money that you could raise for the bar. <laughs> it was just, you know, clearly illegal. And so, um, what when uh, so when Walker saw this, he had the idea. Well, why don't we why don't we use this this sort of energy, this zeitgeist moment to actually create a product and sell it to these folks? And he designed the Free Fishco T-shirt. So we put together a really simple landing page that was just buy these free Fishco shirts. But that was when we had the insight that buying those shirts up front would be a prohibitive cost and we wouldn't know what sizes to order. But if we just created a landing page where people could pre-order it, it would be possible to launch immediately with no knowledge of what sizes and we would have no upfront investment in that. And so it was, it was possible to get that live that same day instead of having to go through the whole production process, which at which point no one would have cared about Fishco anymore. And so there was a sort of combination of the commerce and the virality of what was happening on Facebook that just lit a fire and people were resharing it, posting it. And that was how it generated so many sales. And this was pre-Kickstarter, right? This idea of, or maybe around the same time, this idea of being able to raise money for something or do pre-orders before actually creating the product? So Kickstarter did exist at the time. Okay. And really, we were applying the Kickstarter logic to a t-shirt sale. And also, all credit goes to Walker for this. I, this really was not my idea. So do you know when Walker thought of this? You may have talked about this. Uh, but was the idea to just generate some revenue to try to cover the costs of Jobsel or just kind of a vanity idea? This bar's closing. Let's do something fun. It was actually a earnest attempt to raise money, not for the bar, just for ourselves. For yourselves. And um, Walker particularly had been doing something. So I was a computer science student and I actually had a lot of work in school. Walker, on the other hand, was studying history and his main focus was entrepreneurism, which he was doing outside of the context of the traditional school classes. And so he was constantly spinning up these projects, doing one-off apps or kind of like hack weekend hackathon startups and um that i think that that iteration for him that he did all through the course of his you know sophomore junior senior years of college was a big part of what got him to the point where he could actually launch uh, a successful company with a good concept because he had just gone through so many and you mentioned that in the beginning he was doing the front-end work so if he was a history major did he, how did he know the design and front-end coding side of things 
Well, he was always just doing that on the side. So that was his skill set. Why, how, how he was spinning up all these ideas and hackathons and stuff was, yeah, self-taught. Well, very, very cool. cool. Uh, so Walker convinces you that this is a better, more profitable idea. You guys have this investor. Did they actually invest at that point when you guys were able to sell those shirts or, or a little bit later? So they invested a little bit after that on the basis of how successful that one campaign had been and then also on the basis of how many other organizations and individuals were reaching out and saying they wanted to do something similar do you remember how much they invested and how did you guys figure out the valuation and all that stuff especially since you were just graduating college i don't even know if you knew how to set a valuation we didn't and i don't think that we handled it in the best way we could have we also weren't as empowered as many founders are today with the existence of something like a safe and the existence of uh, resources and community that sort of create a standard around this is what it should look like to raise money. And so instead, we we ended up raising money from the only angel investor who was offering us money on basically whatever terms they negotiated with Walker. Now, did they find Walker or was he or she already in, the, in Walker's network? Correct. They met us through a program that we did, an incubator program that we did in Providence. Got it. Do you remember how much they gave you guys? So I think it was about $300,000. I'm pretty sure that initial investment, it was either three hundred dollars or $500,000. Okay. Specifically for Teespring. Yes. Now, did you guys already wind Jobzil down? I don't know if you had incorporated it yet or if it was more of a concept that you worked through on the accelerator. So Jobzil was a separate corporation and we had gone through the incubator with it. And so there was a tough conversation. We told the incubator people, we're doing a separate corporation. We are raising through an investor we met through your program. However, we aren't going to keep that corporation going. We ended up selling Jobzil to the Rhode Island Student Loan Authority. And they actually still use the underlying technology, the PHP backend that was Jobzil was built on to power their job platform. So Jobzilla is still, the code is still running, which is completely crazy to <laughs> wow. me. Um, but there, it, it did actually not, it was not sold for a lot of money, but that's, that's what happened to Jobzilla. Hmm. How did you guys sell it? Did somebody approach you or it kind of came out of the conversation? There was somebody who had been interested in it. And I think that they were never going to be interested in it for a, anything other than a fire sale. We just need to find a home for it kind of situation, but that's ended up being what we had. So then you guys took some of this money and were heads down again building for about six months or so from, from what I read. And then you launched it and nobody really cared. So, mm. so what happened? Uh, why didn't people care? I thought there was a good amount of excitement around it and people wanted to sell their shirts. So what really happened when you launched? So we launched with a pretty full-featured app uh, that allowed you to create these Kickstarter for t-shirts, basically. And we had this list of people who had already said they wanted to run a campaign with us. And we hit them up. We got some of those campaigns going. And then after that, we were kind of in the big wide world of now we're just a website on the internet that's burned through its pre sign up user list. And where do we go from here? Um, you know, we would look at the numbers on the Google analytics and see, oh, there's six people looking, oh, wait, wait, there's four, four of them are, are people in our office. You know, like, <laughs> it was just like, sort of, uh, how are we going to get traffic to our website? 
who's gonna even use this before that point we had basically been going off of a kind of well if we build this people will use it kind of mentality and um, obviously that is just not not how it works when you exhausted that list what was the first step to to getting after a bigger market did you try to find some niche that really cared about this type of product or you know what what did you spend the next uh, let's say the next six months doing so i think what happened then and i you know i see a lot of companies where they get to this stage and there's sort of a moment of crisis wait we built the product here we are do we not have product market fit maybe this just isn't the product that the market needs right now. We were kind of on a, uh, I guess, we were stubbornly on a path where we wanted to make it work. So for us, that answer of there's no product market fit or maybe we need to pivot, it was just kind of not even in our minds. It was just like, we're gonna figure out a way to do this. And how we did it was by just actually calling and, and reaching out to lots of different organizations and trying to find other people. So it was really a manual sales effort to get more clients in there and a really uphill battle during that period of time. Um, you know, but, but there was a little bit of a viral coefficient to what we were doing because, you know, every single time we got a client, they would then post that link to all of their followers or whoever their audience was. And so those people would get introduced to the concept of Teespring. And what I'll also say is what kept, one of the things that did keep us going because there, you know, sometimes you do need to draw the line and say, well, this just isn't working. But every time we did get a customer and they did post it to their fans or friends, those people were buying at a very high conversion rate. And so it was just, the problem was getting people who could design something and who had a following or who had a way of marketing it. But once they did that, we were seeing the results we expected to see. Got it. Yeah, that's that's a difficult thing with a lot of startups is if you don't have any positive indicators, you ultimately you do either need to pivot or make a difficult decision to give up. But it sounds like you guys did see some some indicators that this would work. And then how did you decide, you know, which companies to call or what market it could work with? Was there any signal there that it may work with certain types of creators or businesses versus others? And, you know, how, like, how long did it actually take you to, to, to figure out how to have a repeatable process where you can get customers at a somewhat of a predictable way? It never, ever got to that point, and it still isn't at that point where we could get customers in a repeatable, predictable way. What happened instead was that we thought that our best users would be nonprofits and people like trying to raise money for some kind of cause because that was what we founded the company on was this sort of concept of a campaign, sort of like a fundraising campaign or a Kickstarter, but with a T-shirt. And so we were out there trying to find nonprofits basically and that was the main contingent we were going after but the funny part is those actually didn't end up being our best users and so one of the insights that we took away from that was that you may not realize who your best users are you might have ideas about who is going to use your product but if it's if your product is sufficiently generic there may actually be another group of people that are the best users for your product that uh, will will discover you as opposed to you having to sell it to them but in terms of the it sounds like the target 
you were sort of continuing to refine over time. But even in terms of the customer acquisition strategy, sounds like you guys were doing essentially direct sales from the start. Was Walker leading the charge there? Walker was, and we did have help. The company at that point, you know, we we did have we had a good financial backing. Our angel investor in Providence had also was also helping with operations, and so we had a small team, and there were actually um, a number of people helping us make those sales. So then, were the primary customer customer acquisition activities people picking up the phone and cold calling? Was it also cold emailing? Was it doing like these social media advertising pushes? What would you say was most of the time spent on and actually getting uh, customers in the early days? So for those, that was all cold outreach, email and phone. At a certain point, I think it was probably about a year after you started working on this, you decided to to apply and got into Y Combinator. Correct. Uh, and you guys were doing a decent amount of revenue at that point. Was it? I think it was like seven hundred fifty thousand or so in sales. What made you decide to then go to Silicon Valley and participate in that accelerator program? You guys had already been in an incubator before. You already had some investors. You had some revenue. Why participate in a program like YC and give up more equity? I think it maybe it might be worth also just sort of pausing to say we did inflect there did you know we did start getting users and this happened before we applied to yc where we did find our user base so and who was that once you found it what was that user base so that type of user that yeah found and you, I, I guess <laughs> the way it happened was one of the fundraiser campaigns that we launched somebody who had a facebook page for i'm pretty sure it was called Big Truckin' Girls. And so basically there's this Facebook page for country lifestyle girls who like to get in big trucks and drive around. And the girl who runs that page had seen one of our ads, or it wasn't an ad, it was a, it was one of the campaigns that one of the nonprofits we were working for. And so she found out about our website and decided to create a t-shirt to sell to her audience. And I remember the shirt still, it said, I love big trucks, mudden, bonfires, and country boys <laughs> in like a kind of mud splotch, mud splotch font. And that was right around the end of the year in, 20, uh, in 2012 when this happened. And I just remember the moment when we all turned on Google Analytics and we were like, where is this traffic coming from? We we're getting a ton of traffic and it was all coming from this Facebook page, Big Trucking Girls. <laughs> and um, after that, she made so many sales that everybody who had a Facebook page wanted to try Teespring as a way to monetize their digital asset of their Facebook page. And that was when we started growing. Very cool. And that sounds very repeatable because there's probably hundreds of thousands of Facebook pages out there. Absolutely. See, that, that one, that was incredibly great and it had required and it required essentially no touch from us it was so effective at that time that it just went completely viral and you would have been stupid at that time if you'd had a facebook page not to be posting a teespring link unfortunately that changed very quickly because facebook was changing a lot back then and so how much reach you would get from a page really that number went down orders of magnitude so but initially you're saying people or people that owned facebook pages I guess, saw 
this trucker trucking mud loving mm-hmm. uh, page and decided, oh, I want to do this for myself. And they organically found you guys that way. Exactly. And really, it was only, you know, it was just, it was a classic hockey stick exponential growth. Like you just saw there was, there was one and then there were three and then there were a hundred you know, it just went up from there. Now, were you in Y Combinator already at this point? So this was right before we applied to YC. So kind of bringing us back to where in the store we were when we got into YC and we were already seeing exponential growth. When we applied for YC, we were doing $250,000 a month in sales. And the reason we didn't even know about YC, actually, the only reason we went was because Sam Altman, who at the time was not the president of YC, but was just a partner at YC, grew up on the same block as Walker. Hmm. And so their brothers were really good friends. And Sam Altman called us and said, hey, you should apply to YC. And we we decided, all right, let's 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 just do it. Why not? It's kind of all the thinking that went into it. <laughs> <laughs> but do, were you, now at this point, you're, you're doing more than $250,000 a month in sales. And, if, and I'm, I'm sure that's, like that's revenue, not uh, profit. But oh yeah, yeah. Uh, since you're since most of it is going back to the the people that are creating the shirts. Mm-hmm. But did you have to raise more money? Is that why you decided to to go that route? I mean, you're giving up six percent of your company unless they cut you some special deal. So why go to that program once you're already generating sales like that? We, I I don't know exactly how much logic there was into us going, but. I, I think that what we got out of it was a lot. And the the value that we had for us as a company that was in Providence, Rhode Island, was YC put us on the map as a Silicon Valley company. It, it was like buying into a community that we had been not a part of. Like you think about the fact that we didn't even know what YC was. We didn't have access to any of the, the talent. And so ultimately we did it I think what we got out of it was we were able to establish an engineering office in San Francisco. We were able to start hiring top tier engineers. We were able to get access to these top tier funds. Um, Going into YC, I don't know that we thought about all of that or all of those benefits or what it would be about. It was more like, um, it was really exciting. It was exciting to go from Providence to, to Mountain View and to be there in Silicon Valley with all these people who had already done it. And I think we just really wanted more of that. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you both wanted to turn this into a really big company. So mm-hmm. fast growth was probably important. And then it's probably a concept that's pretty easy to copy. Did you start to see copycats come around around that time? Yeah, we. so it wasn't quite then. It was more like late 2013 early 2014 when we started to see copycats or just straight up clones um you know there's there's even a company that was started by some people in berkeley called t-chip that is literally just exact copy of teespring like every single element of the interface they would just like pixel for pixel copy it and it sucks because uh there are no protections against that um there's no patent for user experience so there's just nothing that you can do. But basically there was a whole, you know, world of pages that looked exactly like Teespring landing pages, except with a different logo and name, confusingly similar one, and where the product you would get when you bought it was much a much inferior product for a similar price. 
So you guys did a lot of really cool stuff and you created a ton of jobs in Providence and then in Silicon Valley as well. And it sounds like getting into Y Combinator and becoming part of that community set you on uh, maybe a different trajectory, a certain trajectory where you guys started raising a a good amount of money. I mean, $65 million is a ton of money. So you were able to convince investors that the company would have a massive value above that. Do you do you remember how you were able to do that or did investor money just come pretty easily because people were seeing growth? When you have growth, it's so easy to raise money if the climate is good for it. And it was at the time. And our growth was crazy. In 2013 and 2014, we had you know, gone from starting YC at $250,000 a month, ending it closer to a million dollars a month. And by the end of that year, we were doing over a million dollars in top line a day. Wow. And so the, or maybe that was in 2014, but the acceleration basically was unlike what most investors had ever seen. And we owe a lot of that to actually the power of Facebook's platform because it was this sort of beautiful symbiotic relationship between our product and the different ways in which you could deliver content to a person in different targeted ways on Facebook that was driving all of that viral growth. And so in a way, yes, it was it was kind of like a sponge soaking up water. Just, you know, Facebook was so ripe to be monetized and our platform was a perfect fit of a way to sell something to someone on Facebook. Um, but yeah, it drove that hyper growth. And, and, and honestly, like, yeah, with that kind of growth, raising money was very easy and i think that what i can speak to more is that may not have been always the right decision for us to raise so much money even though at the time it was very compelling to do so because it was so easy to do so and the valuations were so high and of course as a founder when you're getting you know 100 million plus dollar valuation it's very exciting because what that means for your personal net worth is is um, two things that in the moment you're going to have a crazy high net worth on paper. And also that you're committing to something that could mean that you have much less of an ability to actually realize any of any financial gains for yourself in the future. I didn't think about that part of it as much. I was just excited about my personal on um, paper net worth going up. I wasn't thinking through, oh, but now we have this preference stack. Now we have this valuation locked in. Now, if we want to raise more money, we're going to have to go to a higher valuation. You know, where if we want to sell the company, we would have to sell it for an even like a higher valuation for that to be considered a success or for it to be um, something where we would make significant amounts of money. Uh, During that phase, everything was just going so well that we didn't really stop to think that much about that. And none of your investors or advisors ever told you like, okay, you know, watch out for the valuation. You're going to have to keep on growing at this rate for a long period of time for it to be worth it? No, I think that, um, I don't think that we were thinking about it in that way. It was more like, this is a really high valuation. We can get a lot of money for a very small percent of the company. Let's do it. So if you were to do anything different, I guess, and you came to a crossroads and you were on another rocket ship that had hockey stick growth and you were getting money thrown at you, Mm -hmm. what would you do differently? Oh, or even one of the startups that you're advising, what would you tell them to do differently? Certainly, yeah. I, I would... So so a couple of things. One of them is is simply to spend money less quickly. 
I think that it is often encouraged by the VCs. It's in their interest to see you spend the money that they gave you and not to, to spend it slowly, but to, to try to really continue to get growth. And that's that it's true that that's how you create you know, moats, a barrier to entry, a monopoly. Um, maybe you have to grow so quickly to, to like leave everyone else in the dust. But if that is your goal, then you need to really think about, well, what is the best strategy to create a moat? How am I going to spend this money? How is it going to achieve that? And what I don't think founders do as much as, well, not all founders, some founders I think are really good at this, but others aren't, is they don't think of time as another asset that that money could buy them how could we spend this money so that the company could now last for three more years at, without having to raise again versus one year and then have to raise again? It's tempting to think that, well, if we spend three times as fast, we'll still get as much work done, but in one year. But that actually doesn't end up being true, especially when it comes to engineering and product, because you can only parallelize so much. You need to build a good team. You need to train your team. So there's some hard limitations to how fast you can actually scale. And it's it's really good to be cognizant of that and then to try to buy yourself as much time so that you can have time to do these things and also to recognize you may not realize at this moment what the best way to spend your money is. Money is a very powerful asset that you can use at any time to accomplish things. So slow down and try to keep your bank full. That's the advice I would give to people who are raising Series A's today. Uh, and, and focus on your product, focus on your core product, making it better. And, and um, that doesn't always require a ton of capital. That's okay, though. Now you could be a product company with a great product and have all this this uh, war chest of extra money that you have in, to deal with situations that come up. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, but I, I know there was a Wall Street Journal piece that came out, I think, a year ago that the company did eventually have to raise a, a pretty significant down round. Is that because they were pushed to you guys were pushed to spend the money and you ultimately had to raise more to, to keep going? And and uh, how, how do you see the company moving forward from from that? It's I mean, it sounds like there's still you guys had to do some layoffs, but they kept a good, good portion of the team still. I think most of the team is still intact, which is awesome. Sounds like it was managed as well as it could have been. So how did that process go and, and where do you see the company going moving forward? I mean, it's definitely makes sense that you're asking about that. And I also don't want to ascribe the blame to some circumstances because I think that we always had it in our power to decide to do things differently there even when there was pressure maybe to spend more or to go faster it was never something that was out of our control so ultimately the blame is on us as founders for not slowing down that process and I think we learned a lot through the process of having to do um having to do layoffs really the situation that occurred was that we had structured the company in a way that would have been ideal if we were to have continued growing and to have been going at a higher uh, gmv rate but at at the point when we slowed down and stopped growing uh, we had already invested into infrastructure that would have only supported the company at that higher rate and so our burn was too high and so basically that ended up with us getting into a bad financial situation, having to do layoffs. And unfortunately, we have had to lay off many, many people. I mean, it's the flip side of we created a lot of jobs. 
we also had to do a lot of layoffs and um now the company is significantly smaller and very different than it was you know at the kind of the time when it was booming um, we still have a facility in Kentucky that employs hundreds of people, which is great, you know, and we still have an office in San Francisco with uh, engineering and, and finance. But yeah, definitely uh, went through a lot of changes. Yeah. But you guys were able to grow a business from, as you said, you know, you're doing 250000 a month to a million dollars a day, which is incredible. Can you talk a little bit about you know, aside from the money, which is nice, how do you guys think that you were able, as young founders that don't have experience scaling companies, how do you think you were able to effectively grow the business and uh, actually get it to the next stage and handle the growth and mm. demand, aside from the fact that you had some money? Well, I, I think that we were often in one of two stages as a company. There were times when we were scrambling to handle the business that was coming in, and then there were times that we were scrambling to try to get more business in the door. And oftentimes I see founders being in one of these two places. Obviously, trying to find a way to handle all the business you have coming in is the quote unquote good problem to have, whereas the other one is a little bit more difficult. Um, but I don't know if there's any special trick. It was just that kind of work I actually think can be easier in some ways, even though it can make you work harder. But usually when you have a lot coming at you, you just know that you have to deal with all of it. And so there's a lot of putting out of fires. Um, what I will say is that I think in the process of that, if you can also find a way to continue to evolve your product and to kind of make it something that becomes stickier and that those users are, who come in don't go, that there's a way to keep them in your in your world in your user base to make them relevant to you as in the future is how you build cohorts and how you build something that really grows over time um, i believe that what happened with teespring was actually that we were growing so much just off of viral growth on facebook that we didn't actually have as much time and energy to focus on how do we make the most out of those users how do we keep those users in our ecosystem turn them into repeat customers um, that if we had thought about those things beforehand, we might be in a very different situation to, than we are today because just as fast as those users came, once Facebook made it harder to access them, they no longer came to our platform. I think that's incredible feedback. Uh, and you see lots of companies that have been around for decades, you know, if they don't have anything quote unquote defensible or they know how to keep their customers or they provide, continue to innovate and provide additional value, it doesn't matter how much value you've been able to build, you can still disappear. So I think that's a, that's a great takeaway. And I'm sure something that you're, that you're sort of passing on now to the companies that you work with. Mm. Um, and I'm curious, you know, now that you have all this benefit of hindsight, you spend seven years building up this company or, or six years, I suppose. And now that you invest and advise in companies and as you're thinking about your next thing, how do you uh, decide what opportunities to pursue even as far as founders you spend time with investing and advising in and your their own projects that you're going to be moving, uh, working on moving forward? Because I do think that you have a very uh, new and unique perspective on this, very mm -hmm. different from what you had going into it. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to what I look for for founders that I would want to advise or work with, the, the founding team dynamics are important to me. Harping back to what I was saying about what worked with Walker and I early on, 
in terms of the dynamic that we had between each other and that sort of pinwheel of productivity. That is something that I look for. I look for companies that are able to rapidly deploy product um, to be able to test their assumptions. And people who do that oftentimes end up stumbling upon something that does work. It's also important to me that there's some sort of underlying insight, key insight, or kind of a machine to generate insights that is going to be a differentiation from whatever else is, is going on. And I think most founders have that. I mean, that's that's pretty common. So yeah, at the end of the day, it's ability to get things done and, you know, just ability to, to kind of make, make it happen, to not take any excuses and to find a way to to have users or have growth or build the technology that you're trying to build. A lot of times there's there's a little bit of hackiness and scrappiness that comes along with trying to get that together in the early days. And I appreciate that. Um, I really appreciate when I see founders doing that, but I also appreciate founders who I think beyond that understand where they're going with it and who really have an understanding of where they want to end up what what they see the future looking like yeah i think we agree with you 100 percent. with the founders that we work with it's the same idea you know you you look at the founder dynamic because a lot of times teams fall apart and projects go nowhere because unfortunately they can't seem to work together but then the other piece and probably the most important piece i would say is that execution are they willing to do the hard work it sounds like you were fortunate enough that you found this symbiotic relationship with walker where you trusted each other Mm. you both did the hard work Mm -hmm. uh, and even when things got difficult it sounds like no matter what you work through things you didn't give up i think that that's that's an important piece you work with founders long enough and you get to kind of get a nose for who's going to give up when they face a challenge and who's going to push through Mm. so it sounds like that's something that you had from first person experience and now you can apply to your investment and advising evans tice clayton thank you so much for coming on the show uh we're excited to continue to follow your career and it sounds like you know you said yourself you might want to start another company and maybe even be the ceo of another company soon so we hope to have you back on the show to hear about your next uh rocket ship Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, would love to come back again sometime. Thank you.